This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition is funded by Pain Concern's donors and friends, assisted with an educational grant from Grunenthal. If all healthcare professionals in the field of pain did one hour of education for one day in just one year, in terms of the number of people that would be reached, it would make a a very significant difference. The International Association for the Study of Pain, or IASP as it's known, brings together scientists, clinicians, healthcare providers and policymakers to stimulate and support the study of pain and translate that knowledge into improved pain relief worldwide. They've nominated 2018 as the Global Year of Excellence in Pain Education. Dr Paul Wilkinson, who's Director of the Pain Management Service in Newcastle in the UK, is lead for the International Task Force for the project. The Global Year for Excellence in Pain Education is divided into four main areas, patient education, professional education, public and government education and pain education research. The cornerstone of uh, the Global Year in Pain Education will be a web-based resource which will have educational resources for professionals, for patients, for public and government and to facilitate education research. But resources not much good on a website. We have to lift them off the website and there will be strategies to try to communicate the needs, the gap in pain education through the world. One key example would be that there is an absence of minimal essential training for healthcare professionals in pain management in hospitals and healthcare institutions. Uh, there was a, an important publication in Canada and has been replicated in other countries that showed that the educational provision to uh, healthcare professionals was uh, less than uh, vets. And obviously the inference there was that maybe animals were getting the better deal than uh, humans. And that was a strong statement for what needed to be done in, in pain education. So how will the Global Year address that? It's got a, a multi-pronged specialty covering the different areas of education. With patient education, we are uh, providing a, a series of resources that will improve patient education using the most up-to-date um, research. For professionals, there is uh, the launch of uh, a number of curricula and resources to try and help professional development. In addition, we want a minimum essential training for all healthcare professionals. Related to public and government education, we want to carry the messages to government and make public aware of the, uh, the problems with uh, the patients suffer and the uh, lack of resources through the world. Uh, and finally, as well as trying to bridge the gap between what we now know and what we do, we'd actually like to know more. So pain education research is an important part of the uh, global year. Now, you're based in the UK. You work in Newcastle with the NHS. Mm. Is there something you can learn from other countries? Sharing of information, if you like, and other countries can learn from you. Absolutely. The dissemination of different uh, experiences is an important part of the Global Year for Excellence in Pain Education. The International Association for the Study of Pain values this uh, part of its work. There are positive experiences of treating different conditions in different parts of the world. And it's really important that new developments are, are shared across countries and between countries. When we speak again in a year's time, what do you hope will have happened? 
I hope that every person with pain in the world would know the kind of resources that are available to help them. We want governments through the world to recognise pain as a disease and to provide the resource to uh, ensure the, uh, the well-being of their population. You brought up an interesting point of governments recognising pain. Well, is chronic pain a condition or is it just a result of some other condition? Well, there are two types of pain, broadly speaking, acute pain and chronic pain. They may not be the best terms, but that's what we use medically. Acute pain is pain that uh, follows injury. It's closely related to injury. It's proportionate to level of injury. And as the injury heals, the pain resolves. What I think people don't know is that where pain persists, Yes, it may be due to a problem. It may be due to a rheumatological condition, rheumatoid arthritis that's not resolved. But most commonly, it occurs in its own right. It's a disease in its own right. There are changes that occur in pain parts of the nervous system, which means that when injuries heal, instead of the pain going as the injury gets better, the pain unfortunately stays. Sometimes we can recognise these injuries because we know the accident occurred, but sometimes these injuries are small, they occur through our lifetime and lead to persistent back pain or persistent neck pain, taking away the life that we'd had previously. And In fact, one of the starting points of the global year is to try to improve our understanding of pain better through patient uh, stories. So the Global Year in Pain Excellence in Pain Education is uh, starting with patients, uh, putting patients um, in the middle. That education side from the patient's point of view, explaining what pain is and what's available there, that's something that I hope we in Pain Concern can contribute to this Global Year of Excellence in Pain Education. Absolutely, and I, I hope that this will contribute significantly to education in promoting the Global Year. That's Dr Paul Wilkinson, lead of the International Association for the Study of Pain's task force of their Global Year of Excellence in Pain Education. And you can keep up to date with all that's happening throughout the year at their website, which is iasp-pain.org. I-A-S-P, spells I-A-S-P, iasp-pain.org. And don't forget that Pain Concern contributes substantially to patient and healthcare education through its information leaflets, helpline, magazine, campaigns and, of course, these Airing Pain podcasts. And this is number 98, by the way. That's nearly 50 hours of information about living with and managing chronic pain from leading authorities in their field, be they healthcare professionals and researchers and expert patients. You can download all editions from Pain Concern's website, which is Pain Concern, no gaps there, painconcern.org.uk. It's probably best not to listen to all 50 hours worth in one go, which brings me to the small print that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Once again, Pain Concern's website is painconcern, no gaps, painconcern.org.uk. Now, advances in pain medicine and pain management can cost 
an awful lot of money in terms of research and development, and they can take years to roll out. But is there a correlation between investment and patient benefit? Pounds per point on the pain score, if you like. There's a gold mine here. There really is something that could make a massive difference to the way in which people sustain the gains, sustain the momentum of a pain management programme. That's our feeling. There really is something to mine into here. That's Dr Nick Ambler. He's a clinical psychologist and a lead of the North Bristol Pain Management and Self-Management programmes at Southmead Hospital in Bristol in the UK. And this is Lisa Parry. I'm a patient that's been through a self-management programme within the hospital here. And at the end of that, we were asked if any of us were interested in volunteering to help present the programme and I had found it so beneficial for myself that I thought it would be maybe a good thing for me to do. Nick, you're one of the leads on the pain management programme. I'm not sure I've come across patients being actively involved as teachers. It's something we started around about 2008, 2009, as part of a multi-centre project across the country regarding long-term conditions, which involved not just involvement of a patient tutor in providing information and personal experience, but the sharing of the delivery of the whole course, which was a big leap for us then. And quite a few of us were concerned about how well that would work out, but we quickly found that it worked spectacularly well within the context of reorganising our service to have a middle tier. So I think most people have a grasp of what a pay management programme is nowadays, which from our point of view is quite an intensive form of support for people to learn self-management strategies with chronic pain. We created a middle tier for people that are really just in ready to have a go at it. They already understand the basics of it. They're not ambivalent about wanting to try that stuff out. So we designed a shorter course where you basically hit the ground running with that. Now, I guess that it's not unusual to have a so-called an expert patient in just to talk to people, but actually to teach them. What are the issues there? Well, I think the concerns everybody had, really, from, from people volunteering to come forward, you know, what do you want me to do? Is it right that I should be doing this? I need to know what's going to happen. I need to know precisely what I need to say. From the health professional's perspective, concern having gathered a hell of a lot of experience before you're in a position where you can deliver a pain management programme, it kind of felt as if that experience was being not being acknowledged. You do need that as a health professional. But what they lack is a day-to-day understanding of what it's like living with pain. They don't have personal reference points with every element of course delivery. There's the stuff that will resonate for Lisa because she's had to face those challenges in ways that I haven't. So they can't constantly refer back to that. They're not a model of how well somebody can adapt themselves despite having pain every day. Um, Lisa brings all of that stuff into a course in a way that I can't. So the thing that we need to tackle fairly early on was setting up a training course which provided the basic rudiments and also to define the role because there are clear distinctions in the way in which the patient tutors operate within their share of the course and the way in which the health professionals operate. Basics that we all observe though is when you're doing one of these courses 
we have an understanding which is our own, but we try not to dictate. So we've had this mantra of ask, don't tell, which is basically explore issues with people, but don't try and tell them how to live their lives. Because the learning experience of taking part in one of the course means rubbing shoulders with others in the same situation, learning as much off them and learning by trial and error, prioritising what you want to change. And all of those things are going to be a unique thing for each individual taking part. Lisa, tell me about your pain journey. Basically, I was fit and active working for Bristol University at their veterinary school very physically demanding job and one day I bent over at work and I then couldn't walk at the time I was just bent over in pain I'd had what I think they used to call it it was a a, a slip disc a, a bulging disc and was expecting a fairly quick recovery from that, which didn't actually happen. And I just could not do the job I was employed to do, basically, and had to give up working then. And it's been kind of finding my way back from a a bit of a dark place from that point onwards, living with pain. It's pretty constant, but now, having done the self-management programme, I'm, I'm able to manage that to a level where I can continue to do the things that I want to do now. I think anybody living with the situation that Lisa's just described faces lots of choices. They may not recognise those choices straight away. For example, what do you prioritise if you only have so much energy and focus left to you in a day because you've had a terrible night's sleep, you can't move around very well? Um, you could be thinking about uh, managing bit bit of the housework perhaps or going to see someone or reading or something like that. What are you going to do? And what are you doing, for example, to maintain your fitness against the fact that the pain that's going on is probably complicating things with muscle tension. So if you're inactive, it's harder to get to sleep. So when you make that choice, it will have consequences. If you do some more housework it's going to have a beneficial effect in one area but not in another. If you decide to, say, call a friend or go see someone, likewise. In some ways, it is a little bit of self-control as well because if I'm feeling well today or if Lisa's feeling well today, she can go out and run a marathon. It might not be the correct thing to do. So you have to control your thoughts and actions. Yes. The topic of pacing is one of the things that people reflect back on at the end of course saying, you know, I really needed to do something about that. Which is odd. Because at the beginning of the course we generally ask people, you know, who understands the importance of pacing? And everybody says they do. They all say Of course we do. <laughs> they all say, yep, it's really important. And then so the next question that follows from that is so who who is pretty good about applying it. Lisa, how easy is pacing? Really, really difficult. <laughs> Not for me now. Um, now I've, I've kind of got the hang of it, but at the beginning, really difficult to sort of think I'm going to do a minimum amount of something to enable me to then get through the rest of the day. So I'll do a minimum amount and then I'll put a rest break in or I'll take a short walk or I'll do something else and I'll go back and do another small portion a bit later on. You're fighting that instinct to get the job done, which is kind of how I was brought up. You know, if you start a job, you should finish it. And I think that's perhaps how a lot of people are. You know, you 
you want to get things done and to break that cycle is is really quite difficult at the beginning but once you do it's fantastic and it has actually enabled me to do far more long term than if I had tried to keep going on this cycle of do it all and then be off my feet for four days. Nick I suppose you have to keep for want of a better term you have to keep patient trainers on message it has to be within your curriculum. Yes and there is always a sense with these courses that we don't have enough time to get through all that we want to get through. There's a degree to which one adapts each course according to what crops up for that group of people. Some have bigger priorities, for example, around the way in which frustration and anger can come out in everyday life and relationships. That wouldn't normally be part of our curriculum for the course, but sometimes we bring stuff in about that and run a session on that. Lots of groups have real issues with sleep, something my colleague Sarita knows a lot about. Other groups, that's less the case, and so we might magnify or play that down. But we do have a core set of things that we, we need to get through. I think as well, one of the disciplines for health professionals that we have to learn is for us not to be telling long, elaborate, metaphorical stories about why a point is important. When you have somebody sitting next to you who can talk from the heart about what they did in a much more succinct way. So to an extent, the health professionals need to rein it in, not just the patient tutors. Sarita, Nick was, just dropped you in it by talking about the sleep course. The sleep management programme, that's not the same as the pain management programme. No, it, it's a separate course that we run, so people can come along to improve their sleep either before they attend a, a pain management programme or a self-management programme or after. It's really a time just to focus purely on, on improving someone's sleep. We've adapted the cognitive behavioural therapy approach for insomnia to, to cater for people in chronic pain. So making their area of sleep as comfortable as possible, maybe putting in some routines of winding down before they go to sleep, putting in some consistent bedtimes and wake-up times. We also look at thoughts that might be happening at night because we know that a lot of people do their thinking at night and that can be quite distressing if their thoughts go to things that, that keep them awake. But the, the most powerful part of the course is what we call sleep compression or sleep restriction. But the idea of, of, of sleep compression or sleep restriction is actually reducing the amount of time that you are in bed so that the sleep pressure builds up throughout the day so that once you do get into bed you, you get off quicker um, you may still wake up throughout the night but the times that you are awake for are reduced and people report feeling their quality of sleep has improved as well it all sounds quite difficult as well because a lot of people really struggle with that because initially you're actually reducing the time that you're spending in bed by a quite significant amount so that can be really really challenging to to stay awake longer in the evenings um, when every part of you wants to get into bed it's a really difficult kind of intervention to, to go through and that's where the group comes together really well because there might be several people in the group that are doing that together and so when they come in back to report on how the week's been it's something that they can they can kind of think about together and think of ways of how they can keep going with it. At what stage do people come on the pain management courses, Nick? I would like to think people come when they feel that this is the right thing for them. So you meet people fairly early on after an injury, similar to the way that Lisa described. 
they could be expecting reasonably that they might recover. Don't need to be doing something like this because I'm going to be better by this time next year. My attitude going into doing my course was if even if I just learn one new thing that will help me to make an improvement, that would be enough. And I obviously, I picked up lots more than that. So you went from patient yes. to patient tutor. How did that happen and how did you make that transition? At the end of the course, we were asked as a group if anyone would be interested in doing it. I actually had a patient tutor on my course who I felt just made everything valid. It was real. It, she'd had personal experience. She understood what we were saying. That was really important to me to have her there. So I just felt, oh, I'll give it a go. I might not be able to do it. I may not even get as far as the meeting about it. But I did, and I did the training course. I then actually went and sat in on a course. I didn't actually present or give any sort of teaching as such but I was observing and watching what they were doing and then after that I did my first course. What was that like? Scary as can be. <laughs> really really scared, quite nervous. Just with a group of people coming in that obviously you've never met before explaining to them that it was my first time <laughs> and be nice to me <laughs> basically but yeah it was absolutely fine. So did you feel the love, the empathy coming back at you? Yeah, oh, absolutely. They were they were really fantastic because I'd said, this is the first time I've done this, and they were just like, oh, you you know, it's really good, you're, you're doing fine, and that gave me a massive amount of confidence to keep going and, you know, to enjoy, actually, what I was doing. So we've heard all about this empathy, this love. It's a two-way thing for the patient tutor and the patient, mm -hmm. what happens when they part company and the pain management programme is over? I think usually there's a hope on the part of the health professionals that this is the beginning, the platform after which people will power on. They have a grasp of the model, but they haven't resolved everything. Uh, they haven't got to the perfect place for coping yet. And that they will use what they've learned off each other and as part of the programme to take things forward. But sadly, when you meet people later on, that often turns out not to be the case. And one of the things that we've been trying to do differently in the last five years has been to change the way courses end. This all came from an incident that happened in that first group that Lisa was describing. And it was when we met for a follow-up meeting three months after that course had finished. Do you remember what happened, Lisa? Yeah, uh, one of the girls in the in the group kind of basically took Nick to one side and, and said, well, what, what do we do now? You can't just leave us. You know, we're sort of feeling like you've abandoned us, kind of that scenario, and, and was sort of demanding, you know, what, what do we do? What are we going to do? At this point, and it's not just me, health professionals who run courses tend to squirm. They have in the sense, you know, that we've got to close this off now. That's part of our process because we need to be moving on. We've already prepared the next course and we can't be doing with bids for keeping the whole thing going. But in that situation, um, my squirming and wriggling led to me pushing it back to that group of people to figure out what they were going to do to keep it going. But the thing that was different was the question was about them collectively rather than individually. 
And that group of people decided they, they would carry on meeting without me, but they invited Lisa to carry on with them <laughs> as, as someone who knew. And that's pretty much what happened, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and we still meet now. That was, I think it was about six years ago. I, my dates are always a bit skewy, but... Um, from that first course, yeah, they decided they were going to get together every two weeks to meet up for a couple of hours just to see how everyone was doing, to make sure, you know, people were still managing and that they weren't struggling with anything. They asked me to go along and, yeah, I, we had our Christmas party last Friday for a couple of hours and, yeah, we've continued to meet. They kept more than just the social contact, though, didn't they? They um, they kept going with the business side of doing Oh, yeah. Course. Oh, yeah. We still goal set. We took goal setting as our main focus because we're constantly trying to move forwards. You know, we want to kind of... There are things we need to do and there are things we want to do. And, and I think we all felt through that first course that that was a really beneficial thing for us. So we actually carried on doing that this became something that we learned from because we figured out well this group of people would do something that seemed clearly to be of great value to them because they when I had reason to meet with them sometime after this they resolved a whole load of problems which I would have expected to come back either into a general practitioner's clinic or into the pain clinic but they'd sorted those problems out amongst themselves crises really mm-hmm. Um, and so what we learned was to try and change the way we ended courses. And rather than think of the whole process as like packing up the tents, the circus is leaving town, which is really what's going on in the health professional's head, to see it instead as the health professional's leaving the party, but we're going to keep it going. We're not finished yet. And so we changed the way in which we close off the course. We don't think about the concept of closure in the same way as would normally happen in a group programme. Whilst the course is underway, we spend a bit more time really building an idea that they can act as therapists for each other within the course, kind of co-counselling, which is the way we've worked out goal setting, how to run goal setting, run the health professional being in command of the whole process. What we do at the start of the course is try and get across the process by which you can be the counsellor to person sitting next to you to be a co-therapist and how you can look after each other and also to really underline the importance of social contact as being one of the best protectors against relapse with chronic pain, which is part of why that particular group were looking after each other so well, supporting each other when one of them was having a difficult spell. So the kind of dialogues we have towards the end, we start to plant the idea just past the halfway point that they can carry on without us and then build towards an end point where a decision should have been reached by those in the room about whether or not they want to and how they're going to keep going in the absence of the health professional. You're fairly unique in what you're doing here with patient tutors. How are your colleagues... The rest of the world, if you like, I mean, how do they take that on board? I think they're intellectually interested and we've been able to present the findings that we've had, which have been, considering that usually you get less than 50% of people coming back for a routine follow-up 
at the end of the course. That's not just something locally, you find that around the country. We got 70% of people involved in um, this networking between each other, willingly engaging with that process, which I still scratch my head in amazement about. So there's plenty pointing to this being quite a phenomenon that should really be taking off. But I think when you're under pressure of service delivery, getting through the numbers, you stick to what you know is difficult to take risks. And perhaps that's contributing to the kind of sense of a slow burn with this. There are plenty of people that want to talk and are interested in it, but there hasn't been the sense of there's a gold mine here. There really is something that could make a massive difference to the way in which people sustain the gains, sustain the momentum of a pain management programme. That's our feeling. There really is something to mine into here. That's Dr Nick Ambler, clinical psychologist and a lead of the North Bristol Pain Management and Self-Management Programmes in the UK, and also assistant psychologist Sarita Viaz, who runs the Sleep Management Programme there. So casting our minds back to the International Association for the Study of Pain's 2018 Global Year of Excellence in Pain Education, here's something for healthcare professionals and policymakers to think about. The person with pain is not just a patient, but potentially is a valuable resource to help others. In the words of our patient trainer, Lisa Parry, It has absolutely changed the way I approach things. I've got so much more confidence in myself, in the abilities that I have. It's still a learning process for me. I find every course that I do, somebody will come in with something new and I'll learn from them, and it just constantly helps me reaffirm my own self-management and just giving me the confidence to try new things and, and make the move forward in life that I really want. 